Hello again, and welcome to episode 30 of We Effed Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And we're here again on our bi-weekly mission to tell you about all of the folks in history who effed up. Who are we talking about this week, Cody? Well, that is going to be up to you, because this one is a little bit of a mystery. This one's a little bit different from our normal fare, uh, since you will be deciding... Uh, who the F or Upper is at the end of the episode. Uh, this one, uh, we know the action, uh, like the effing up action. We just don't know exactly who did it. So, is it multiple choice? Yes. Okay, good. Yes, you will not have to come up with a person out of the blue. I'm going to present the situation, a little bit of background on some people, and I'm give you. I'm going to give you three options. I'm, and I'm going to try to make a case for each one. And then you, Teresa Holmes, with your... Great powers of deduction will make a final determination. And then this is for posterity. Like, from now on, this will be who did it in terms of historiography. This will be the final decision. So you're going to write a book about it? No. Okay. I'm just going to send out a mass email to every single historian uh, in the world and say, uh, Teresa said it was this person, and that's it. Okay. So... That's fair. And that, that will be history law from now on. <laughs> His, history law. <laughs> yes. Um, <clears throat> if any history law uh, specialists can reach out to us, um, that way we can make sure that whatever I decide is on the books, then that would be great. Yep. <laughs> Section 7 of the history code. Section 7 of the history code. Yeah. Or I guess in this case, Section 191. Oh. That's the little little teaser I gave from last time. Yeah, so. I, I figured out what that meant. Did you look this up? No, I I just all I did was Google it, and then I saw about what like around what era era it was, and then I was like, "That's it. That's all I wanted mm-hmm. to know." I did. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't look up anything else. I uh-huh. just saw the word Antietam, and I was like, "Okay, and now I know," because I don't think Antietam comes up in a relevant historiography. Aside from one time. No. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> anyway, uh, the, so yes, uh, the American Civil War, that's what we're talking about today. Uh, Fun. Began on April 12th, 1861, uh, with the bombardment of Fort Sumter, South Carolina, by Confederate forces. Uh, somebody's birthday. Mm-hmm. Mine, if you didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so so you were born on the, the beginning of the Civil War anniversary. Yeah, yeah, which I think that's the second time that's come up. I think, was it during the Challenger episode, I think? Yeah, because I mentioned the space shuttle first launching on my birthday in 1981, and I made a shameless appeal to listeners for presents. Well, that shameless appeal is still open, listeners. Dave Infamy, Cody Reynolds' birthday. No, that's December 7th. This is also a day of infamy. There can be multiple. No, there can be only one, Teresa. Oh. (laughs) You left it it wide open for that. Okay. Oh, God. Oh, yes. Uh, The first major battle of the war at Bull Run in Virginia was a Confederate victory. Uh, This was kind of of a laughable battle uh, because... The it was not too far from Washington D.C., so all the a lot of the residents came out just to watch. Like they would bring like picnics and stuff because they thought, oh, this will be a fun entertainment for the day to watch these Southerners get walloped. And it was the Southerners doing the walloping. 
Oh, boy. Yes. Uh, I like that you used a southern word. Wallop. We'll wallop them yakis. Oh, boy. I wish that you had done the entire episode in that accent. It's too late well, now. maybe I should. <laughs> Since we are talking about the war between the states. Oh, my gosh. Okay, never mind. The Union war effort in the Eastern Theater. I'm so sorry that I even Suffered mentioned it. several setbacks in the first year okay. of the war. All right. <laughs> uh, greatly damaging morale and le- leading that carpetbagger, President Abraham Lincoln, to replace uh, commanding generals in the hope of finding a competent one. Fair. That's very fair. Uh, Union forces at Bull Run had been led by General Irvin McDowell, but the loss there, or after the loss there, the Army in the East was reorganized into the Army of the Potomac. And you see that a lot in the Civil War. You see, like, the Army of this place, the Army of this place, Army of this river. It was Mm -hmm. just, like, an army that, like, would operate in a certain region. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Army of the Potomac was typically, you know, along the Potomac River in Virginia and Maryland and such. Uh, so that, that was reorganized under General George McClellan. Uh, I'm actually going to show you here a picture of McClellan. Uh, he, he's kind of kind of unique looking in the fact that, you know. Interesting. Yeah. He's got a nice mustache. Yeah, he was uh, kind of had a reputation as kind of being a little full of himself. Mm, so and you can fun. you can you kind of get that vibe from that picture. Yeah. So he's uh, doing the thing where he puts his hand inside of the the buttons on his on his jacket, which I always think is like such a strange flex. And who is that like? Who, what historical figure do you think like did you often see depicted like that? Roosevelt. Napoleon. Oh. And he was called like the young Napoleon. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. Which. Well, I think Roosevelt did it too. I think Teddy Roosevelt did it. And I'm pretty sure that there are photos of either Grant or Lee also like that. Yeah, I'm sure there's photos of Lee like that. I think it's a. I think it was like kind of a common. F- yeah. So probably because they thought it looked cool. Number one and number two. One of the things that they needed to do is hold really still. And mm. if you put your hand in your pocket, yeah. that is a way to keep your arm from moving around. So that's true. Well, well, you'll you'll come see McClellan did not deserve any really any comparison to Napoleon based on his battlefield ability. Oh boy, uh, McClellan he'd been born on er, in December eighteen twenty six in Philadelphia. Uh, he was the son of a prominent surgeon, uh, but he decided on a military career instead of medicine. He graduated uh, graduated from West Point in eighteen forty six, second in his class out of fifty nine. Okay, all right. So he's 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 book smart. He's a prodigy. Yeah. In West Point. Although uh, I don't know what you get graded on. I I honestly don't know what going to school at West Point is actually like. I'm sure like, there's like you know, military history, tactics. I, there's some degree of engineering, I imagine. Math. Yeah, yeah, a good deal of math. Um, I, I don't know exactly. Okay. But, um, is it maybe like horse riding, shooting from a horse? Well, back then, yeah, probably. I know, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I, mean, I know... This is a little off topic. Uh, Ulysses Grant uh, was an absolute expert horseman. Mm-hmm. A lot of the like horse marksmanship and riding records mm-hmm. that he like you know because they would you know compete with this stuff. A lot of his records from West Point. He went to West Point in 1840s. Still stand today. Wow. So like he was 
Y'all need to get yeah. on your your horse riding. Yeah, ride. Grant was one of the most expert horsemen probably to ever live. Well, so. now nowadays, I mean, how often do you have to ride a horse and also shoot at the same right, time? Right, right. So it's more just now for, you know, competition or recreation. But still, I mean, it's still... Pretty impressive. Yeah, it's... Yeah. But anyway, McClellan, he, uh, he served with distinction during the Mexican-American War in the 1840s, like right after he graduated. Mm-hmm. Uh, he commanded troops in the Army Corps of Engineers after the war. Serving at various postings in the American frontier. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, re- received promotions to first lieutenant and captain in 1853 and 55, respectively. He served as an observer in the French army during the Crimean War in 1855 and 56. What does that mean, he served as an observer? So, like, a lot of times, and and you would see this, I mean, I think you still see it today, even. Uh, I mean, it's a little different, but you would, if there was a conflict that didn't involve your country... Mm-hmm. You would kind of just go and observe, like, attach yourself to one of the combatants and kind of observe, like, you know, what tactics are they using? What technologies are they using? That's type weird. of thing. To where, like, you might be able to, like, return home and, like, hey, you know, they were using this over here. I think that would, we like, it would do well for us to adopt that technology or those tactics type of thing. Hmm. Okay. And, and also, like, you know, keep, keep, uh... Keep informed about, like, you know, what's going on, basically. Like, I mean, did you ever see the movie Gettysburg? Uh-uh. No. Okay, as I was gonna say, because there's, I don't remember who played him, but, like, there's a character, like, on the Confederate side. There's, like, a, the British Observer. Mm. So, um. So, like, basically, like, trying to go and get information so that they can improve their own yes. war efforts? Yes. Weird. Okay. That does, it seems like it kind of went out of vogue, eh? Like, it's no, not a I thing mean, that happens? Well, I mean, you still have, like, I mean, granted, it's more because they're, like, allies, but, I mean, you still have, you know, uh, U.S. officers that will go to, like, you know, uh, will train with, like, you know, Polish officers or vice versa, or they'll come over here and observe what we're doing. Hmm. Um, Weird. They're, well, I mean, I mean, not really. I mean, it's... You just kind of want to make sure, like, oh, you know, this is a good idea to use. Maybe we should implement that. It's, I think it's just strange for me that it's about war that we would observe and, like, the killing and, you know, taking of lands mm-hmm. that we would do something that is, like, inherently something that you would do in business. It just seems strange that you would employ those same tactics in something as gruesome as war. Yeah. Well. All right. So he was an observer. Yeah. Um, but uh, after the, at the conclusion of that, he resigned his commission in 1857 and began work for railroad companies because he had been in the Army Corps of Engineers. So he so he knows how to build things. Yeah. And okay. you know, is it good? Are we? Is it feasible to blow up this? Blow a hole through this mountain to send this railroad through it? That's um, my favorite thing that I determine feasibility of. <laughs> blowing up mountains. I mean, I would have done it. <laughs> uh, he married Mary Ellen Marcy in May 1860. Uh, at the outbreak of the Civil War, he was commissioned as a major general in May 1861. So remember, the last time he served, he was a captain. Right. So he so He went all the way to major general. Well, they were pretty hard up. They were. I mean, you, you went from an army of just like a few thousand people to an army of like tens of, or if not hundreds of thousands. Wow. So like... Any guy who previously had any experience as an officer, like, hey, you, you, you're a major general. Hey, you. It's like Grant, like with he, the face. 
Grant hadn't been in the army for over a decade, and then when he came back, he like started straight off as a colonel, and then was like made a, a brigadier general pretty quickly. So well, he liked to war. So Grant was good at war. Yeah, that's one of the only things he was good at. He was not good at business. No, I remember that. No, yeah. <laughs> um, McClellan he won some victories in Western Virginia early in the war, but given Union failures elsewhere, he was seen as one of the few successful generals. Weird. Okay. Uh, he was recalled to the East and formed the Army of the Potomac in August 1861. I thought you said that he didn't deserve his moniker of Little Napoleon. He didn't. Or Young Napoleon. Young Napoleon. He didn't. I'm. You'll see why. Okay. Uh, he soon gained a reputation as an overcautious general. He was constantly convinced that he was undersupplied and undermanned, and that his opponents always had more men despite evidence to the contrary. Mm. Like, if he if he had 100,000 men, he was utterly convinced that, like, his opponent had 200,000. <laughs> even though that's not even remotely feasible for the South at the time. Because it's, like, the popula- just the population numbers, dude. It's, like, just basic math. They're not going to be able to field an army twice the size of yours when you have 120,000 men. <laughs> See, I think I would probably be a general like that, though. I I would be constantly, like, concerned yeah. that I had too little and too few. Yeah, but, I mean, at some point you have to, you know, attack. No. Yes. <laughs> you, you I do. don't have to attack. Somebody's got to attack. Somebody else can well, do somebody's that. Somebody's got to put down this rebellion. Yeah, well. And you're the guy here with the army, so you need to go do it. Somebody else can do that. I could no. I could go and sit down and 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 then when we fail I could be like see we didn't have enough people or supplies blame it on somebody else or just bad or you had bad tactics somebody else had bad tactics I'm not you, the tactician you're, you're you're the guy you're the guy in charge yeah the, well the buck stops with you bro yeah but the <laughs> buck can stop at the next person down from me too no. Nope. You're saying this, but I think that you uh, underestimate my weaseliness. My ability to weasel out of blame from other things. <laughs> well, no, well, uh, well, if you're McClellan, you're not weaseling your way out of it eventually. Oh, um, but yeah, so like, uh, just, he was constantly like complaining to Lincoln that like, I don't have enough men. I don't have enough supplies. Even though like they had intelligence saying like, saying like so much. That intelligence saying that, no, Lee or whoever the general is has this many men, and it is far fewer than you have, mm-hmm. but he would just like, no, 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 no. So th- he would also refuse to attack then? Yeah. Nice. Well, it's not nice. It's civil war. He's on the Union. He needs to put down these these, these traitors. Um, but uh, his troops loved him because he never made them fight. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, like McClellan, he, he would have been probably a decent armchair general, not a good battlefield general Mm. at all. Uh, McClellan devised and executed the peninsula campaign in Eastern Virginia with the goal of marching up the Virginia peninsula, which were like Williamsburg and Jamestown and Yorktown is that's that one that juts out on Mm -hmm. the East coast there, uh, between the James and York rivers to take the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia. The campaign started in March 1862, but failed to meet its objectives, and the plan was abandoned in July. Hmm. Because McClellan, even with his, and he had, you know, 
far superior numbers, could not execute his own plan. He was skirt. That's what that's what I'm taking from this. Maybe he shouldn't be the guy in charge. What I'm taking, what I'm getting from this is that he was he was afraid to pull the trigger. Yeah. Like he he could devise the plans, but he was afraid to actually enact them or be the person there while they're being enacted. He was afraid he'd get defeated and look bad. I mean, maybe that I feel like that's speculation, but uh. at the same time, Confederate forces under General Stonewall Jackson successfully harried Union forces in the Shenandoah, Shenandoah Valley in northern Virginia during the Valley Campaign. After the failure of the Peninsula Campaign, Lincoln turned to General John Pope to bring home a much-needed Union victory. The subsequent Northern Virginia Campaign in July to September 1862 resulted in yet another failure. So Lincoln has gone through his third general by now. And part of the reason that campaign failed was because McClellan like dithered and dallied about sending his own troops to Pope. Mm-hmm. So Pope didn't have enough of the guys. He didn't have enough men. So oh. McClellan, like, kind of purposely just kind of sabotaged this guy. Whoops. Yeah. Um, Is Lincoln starting to catch on? He's getting PO'd? Well. He's like, listen, I'm just PO'd about this. Well, because there, were, there, like, there weren't any other generals he could turn to uh. after that, so he had to just replace Pope with McClellan again. Oh, boy. Uh, confident of victory, the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia under General Robert E. Lee. Uh-oh. Turned north and began an invasion of Maryland. Um, and you, you know Robert E. Lee looks like. I don't even show him to you, do I? No, I know what he okay, looks like. Yeah. Uh, Lee, born in January 1807 at Stratford Hall, Virginia. He came from one of Virginia's most prominent families. Uh, two, to, two of his relatives had signed the Declaration of Independence. Ooh. Which means we'll be talking about them at some point on my new podcast, Imperfect Men, Rating All the Founding Fathers, blah, blah, blah. Go listen to it. Um... <laughs> Lee, he graduated from West Point in 1829, second in his class of 45. Oh. He married Mary Custis, a great-granddaughter of Martha Washington in 1831. He served in the Corps of Engineers, like McClellan. Fought in the Mexican-American War. Wait, did Martha Washington remarry after George Washington died? She was married beforehand. Oh, oh, okay. And her, her first husband died. That's who, that's who her children are with. Okay, that's what George Washington never had any natural children. Right, okay. So. All right. Sorry. It's fine. Uh, Lee fought in the Mexican-American War, like pretty much everybody in the Civil, every officer in the Civil War seemed to. Yeah. Uh, he served as a superintendent of West Point in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he put down John Brown's raid on the Federal Arsenal at Harper's Ferry in October 1859. I did not know that. Yeah. You know John Brown... Yeah. Yeah. So he leaves the guy in charge to put down the uh, the uh, the raid. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a colonel in the Union Army at the outbreak of the war. Uh, he was offered the rank of major general and command of a field army by Lincoln, but instead resigned his commission after the secession of Virginia. So he really stuck to his guns with Virginia. Yeah, he refused to take up arms against his home state. Yeah. So... Because Virginia, it didn't secede, like, with the rest of the Deep South states, mm-hmm. uh, like, immediately. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a few months after the war, you know, really got going. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe a month. I think Virginia was May 1861. But um, he was one of the first uh, first uh, four-star generals appointed by Confederate President Jefferson Davis. 
and he served in various commands until assuming command of the Army of Northern Virginia in June 1862. So the very independent, the Peninsula Campaign. He's the one who like kind of brings the final defeat of the Union in that campaign. Okay, which caused them to retreat. Um, and then he defeat come, comes around and defeats Pope at Second Bull Run, mm-hmm. uh, and then McClellan comes back in September 1862. So just kind of keep the timeline straight there. Okay, so McClellan, then Pope, back to McClellan. Yeah, Lee's up there. Yeah, he's getting up in there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so McClellan has the order stop Lee from advancing into the Union. Okay, which pretty important. Yeah. Because it seems like he's cutting a swath through. Yeah, he's tore through northern Virginia at this point. And, and now, now he's already in, he's getting ready to go for Maryland, yeah, he's, which is solidly Union. Yeah, on September 4th, 1862, the Army of Northern Virginia crossed the Potomac into Maryland with approximately 55,000 men. That's a lot of dudes. Yeah. And remember, McClellan just resumed command of his army two days beforehand. Okay. So, uh, by advancing into Maryland and winning a victory there, Lee and... Jefferson Davis, hoped for three things. A devastating blow to Union morale, because mm-hmm. if they come into your own house and beat you there, that's going to be tough. Right. A clear path to take Baltimore and Washington, mm-hmm. which would... Really close, yeah. and that would decimate things, yep. And giving a push to European powers to recognize Confederate independence. Yeah. So... Yeah. Uh, Lee had hoped to find willing recruits in Maryland, which was still a slave state at this time, and presented himself as a liberator, but Mm -hmm. very few took him up on this. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, In fact, Lee moving into Maryland seemed to shift the war in an unintended direction. New volunteers enlisted into the Union ranks in both Maryland and Pennsylvania, Mm. because they see this army coming at him like, oh, we we should should probably stop that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the South's official policy that it was only defending itself against northern aggression went out the window. Okay, so they're they're thinking like, okay, this is no longer a pass a passive you know war where yeah. they're they're like, oh well, we're only staying in our states to protect ourselves. Yeah. Now they're coming into the Union home and they're like, okay, well clearly that was a yeah. lie. Especially like presenting themselves as a liberator. Yeah. To a Union state, it's like. You're wanting that state to join you. Exactly. So. Yeah. yeah. And coming with 55,000 strong is not exactly mm-hmm. uh, conducive to peace, yeah. typically. So if you're, a you know, somebody who's living near the border there of Virginia and Maryland, and then you see 55,000 men marching into your state, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, well, clearly this is not a diplomatic mission. No. We better go get our own guns. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, on September 7th, just a few days later, McClellan and his force of approximately 102,000 men. So, almost double. Yeah. Began to move into western Maryland from around Washington, D.C. Okay. Which I'm going to show you a little tactical map here. So, McClellan, he starts off like kind of down here. Okay. Around Washington. Lee's up here. And then they they cross they cross over into Maryland like over here so like near um, Frederick Maryland that's kind of where they're heading initially okay so and then they're gonna like campaign here uh, in this little area of like to the west all, all along the Potomac yeah okay and I'll explain that in further detail here momentarily I just wanted to show you kind of where things where we're were. At. 
After crossing the Potomac, Lee divided his forces into two broad commands, under Stonewall Jackson and General James Longstreet, with component forces under each. Jackson was to advance through Middletown and Sharpsburg, Maryland, then move on the Union garrison at Martinsburg, Virginia, before moving on the Federal Arsenal again at Harper's Ferry. So Harper's Ferry shows up again, kind of unrelatedly. Okay. General Lafayette McLaws was to take the Union garrison at Maryland Heights before joining Jackson at Harper's Ferry. Right. General John Walker was to take Loudoun Heights before rendezvousing with Jackson and McLaws at Harper's Ferry. Okay. So they're supposed to, like, take these scattered garrisons and then all kind of link up to take Harper's Ferry. Okay. Because it's fortified and... So they, they they need more men to take it. It's good home base. Yeah. So they're trying to rally the troops, and then they're going to go take this big yeah. fortified base. Yeah. Uh, General Jeb Stewart was to attach parts of his cavalry corps to Jackson's, McLaws, and Walker's forces, and take the remainder of his forces scout and screen potential Union forces coming from the north or the east. So cavalry in this period, like basically, uses scouts to make sure nobody's coming. Okay. Longstreet was to take the remainder of the army north towards Boonesboro, Maryland, and Lee was with him. Mm-hmm. And General D.H. Hill, who had previously been under Jackson, mm-hmm. was to detach himself from Jackson and serve as the rear guard for Longstreet's force. So there's a lot of moving pieces at this a point. A lot of moving pieces, which will come into play. So, like, you see, like, uh, kind of here, like, uh, like uh, they're around here, Frederick, Maryland... The Claws mm-hmm. moves this way. Hill and the rest of the army is moving up here towards Boonesboro and Hagerstown with Longstreet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walker kind of comes around this way to the south. Jackson comes around this way. So there's like a multi-pronged attack here. Yeah, this seems really complicated. Yeah, and the three of them are meeting up right there. Okay, so Ferry. Walker, McLaws, and Jackson, Jackson are all meeting yeah. at Harper's Ferry, and everybody else is kind of going Moving towards north. the north. Yeah. along, Sort of alongside the Potomac. Yeah, sort of, yeah. Moving against the direction of the Potomac. Yeah. After taking Harper's Ferry, which was only expected to take a day... Uh, okay. Jackson, McLaws, and Walker were to march north to rejoin the rest of the army. Okay. Uh, so part, part of taking Harper's Ferry was that there was a federal arsenal there, mm-hmm. so they could capture all the weaponry. Right. Yeah, we know about the arsenal because yeah. of yeah. Lee. Yeah. Um, so, essentially, they were to go and grab up all the dudes, and then they were going to uh, hit Harper's Ferry. They were thinking it was going to take no time at all, and then they were going to go up north to mm-hmm. re-meet with the rest of them, and then push further up into Maryland, and then... And east. Hit, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm in. I got it. This whole set of orders, like this this whole, like all these directions, all these different generals, was Special Order 191. Yeah. So, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit and tell you a little bit about General Hill, because he's kind of important to our story here. Uh, just a little bit. Uh, he'd been born in July 1821 in York County, South Carolina. Graduated from West Point in 1842, 28th of 56. Mm, so, okay. mid- so not, mid- not, not a top two no. guy. Uh, served in the Mexican-American War. Yeah. Before resigning his commission in 1849 to become a math professor. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Confederate Army uh, had a lot of weird generals. He had a math professor, 
Yeah, Leonidas Polk. Going back to episode mm-hmm. three, he was a the bishop. bishop. Yeah. So yeah, 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 a lot of weird people. Uh, he joined the Confederate Army at the outbreak of the war, rising to the rank of major general. Mm-hmm. And he was the brother-in-law of Stonewall Jackson. Oh, interesting. So, okay. Yeah, let me show you a picture of General Hill. Just goes to show, though, that just because you're a math pre- professor doesn't mean you can't be a major general. Okay. Yep. Normal dude. Big, big bushy beard. Yeah. As you do back in the day. Yeah. Also, just being a math professor doesn't mean you can't be a traitor. Um, like all the Confederates were. Anyway. Uh, according to a Lee staffer, now this is very important to understand the process here. According to a Lee staffer, Captain Charles Marshall, the standard procedure for issuing orders was that the, quote, staff took Lee's instructions, wrote them down, entered one copy in the confidential book, or held it to be copied later into the general order book. Quote, unquote, confidential book. Yeah. And sent another copy by orderly to the commander addressed. Sometimes the orderly was told to bring back a receipt. Mm-hmm. Like so, you do. Yeah, so it's like, and remember, you have to write all these out. So, like, if you got orders to give to, like, ten guys, mm-hmm. you got to write it out eleven times. Right. One for each of the ten dudes, and then one for your, the like, their own records. Right. Um, and they'd send a courier, and typically what they do with the receipt is, like, these orders would be in an envelope, they take the orders out, Burn the orders once they have them memorized, memorized. right? Um, and then write down well, maybe not burn them, but like file them away, make sure they're safe, unless it was like told to burn them. Um, I don't know why I said that. Um, <laughs> burn after reading, yeah. Um, I'm thinking like, you know, Mission Impossible, this message will explode. <laughs> um, they, they would just initial the the, the uh, envelope mm-hmm. and send the envelope back with a courier, okay? They, they'd be like. I have received these orders, I acknowledge them, I am executing them now. Uh-huh. Which makes sense. Yeah. The communication misstep occurred when Lee's adjutant, Colonel Robert Chilton, penned the orders for Hill. Okay. A little bit about Chilton. Born February 1815 in Loudoun County, Virginia. Graduated from West Point in 1837. Like you do. 48th of 57. Okay. So not... C's degree. Yeah, I was going to say. I was just about to say D's a degree. Fought in the Mexican-American War, rising in the rank of major, and resigned his commission at the outset of the Civil War and joined the staff of Lee. Okay. Uh, And here is a picture of Chilton. All right. All right. Looks like a normal dude. Big old mustache. Yep. Kind of blurry picture, but... They're all kind of blurry. I mean, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's the Civil War, so. Yeah. Photo, photogra- photography yeah. wasn't exactly uh, 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 fine art. P- perfect science yeah. yet. And here's a co- here's a picture of the actual Special Order 191. It's kind of written out. Uh, I mean, even if they got it, it, it's pretty, it's suspect as to whether or not they could even read it. <laughs> I'm sure that they could puzzle it together but. yeah i mean but especially after doing this for so long it's like you can probably read the person's handwriting it's like a doctor handwriting yeah so remember chilton is the one pinning these orders to okay. hill and as i mentioned hill had acted up to this point as a subordinate to jackson uh-huh and so he would typically receive his orders from jackson not lee okay right 
However, he was given specific orders independent of Jackson. So, like, he is specifically told, detach yourself from Jackson. You are the rear guard of this force. Mm -hmm. So, Chilton decided, well, I'm also going to write a copy for him. But Jackson also sent a copy of those orders to Hill. Man, their filing system is suspect right now. He just copied his own orders from Lee and sent them to Hill. Mm -hmm. His logic was that since this was the order separating Hill from him... It was his responsibility to issue that order. Okay. Saying like, okay, you are no longer under me. You're under this guy for this reason. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, yeah. he was just trying to cover his bases. Exactly. Chilton erred in that he did not specify to the courier that he return with a receipt of delivery. Oh. So this is... Okay, so I decide that this is the courier's fault. <laughs> Lee was pressuring his troops to move quickly, so Chilton likely neglected proper procedure and did not wait for a receipt. Oh, I so see. a couple things may have happened here. Mm-hmm. It's just some some missteps with the courier because Lee's kind of pressuring him, and he's got to write out these orders multiple times. Right. So it, it's taking him a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and all these different complex moving parts. It's like yeah. Yeah. Um, at this time, the Confederate force was encamped outside Frederick, Maryland. Okay. Special Order 191 was issued on September 9th, with movements to commence the following day. Okay. So, September 10th was when all these moving parts start going in motion. Okay. On September 12th, Jackson, McClaws, and Walker moved on Harper's Ferry, with the expectation that it would be taken in a day. Mm Mm-hmm. It took until September 15th. Oh, boy. Three days. Yeah. Meanwhile, the rest of the army moved northwest towards Boonesboro. Mm-hmm. Jackson's force had approximately 23,000 men. The remainder were with Lee and Longstreet. So about okay. half and half. On September 13th, McClellan's force reached Frederick, where the Confederate force just was a few days ago. Yeah, they, they've already left. While marching past the now-abandoned Confederate campsites, Corporal Barton Mitchell of the 27th Indiana Volunteers came across an envelope... With three cigars wrapped in a piece of paper lying on the ground. Uh oh. The paper was a copy, that copy I showed you, of Special Order 191. And it was in some, it was wrapping some cigars? Yeah, the cigars were wrapped with the order and then put in an envelope. Okay. So now. Somebody missed these orders. <laughs> The authenticity of the copy was verified by an officer in the chain of command who recognized Chilton's writing. Because oh, they'd served together years before. So now the Union Army has verified intelligence of all these different movements that the Confederates are making. Oops. Yeah. That's not good. No. Uh, I'm going to show you one, another picture here. So Lee's camp had been here at this farm area just mm-hmm. south of Frederick. So, like, the Confederate Army is presumably camped out all along in this area. Right. The Union Army is kind of moving up this way. Following. Yeah, and this is where the orders are found. Okay. So it's not actually in, like, where Lee himself was camped. It's right outside. It's it's almost like it was being taken to somebody else. Okay. So it seems like it was being taken by somebody else and or they dropped it. Yeah, or it was carelessly discarded. Okay. So... They're like, wow, these cigars suck. Goodbye. Yeah, or it's like, they're like, well, I need something to put these cigars in, so I'm going to stuff them in this envelope. 
and and then yeah. immediately throw them away. They're like they fell out of a case or something. Yeah. The vital intelligence was forwarded up the chain to McClellan, who now had Lee's complete plan and position of forces. He exclaimed, quote, Here's a paper with which if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home. End quote. <laughs> Armed with the knowledge that Lee's forces were divided, McClellan moved to intercept the force moving north, planning to defeat it, then swing down south to finish off Jackson's force around Harper's Ferry. Okay, so that he knows that they're split up right now, that they're mm-hmm. weakened. Yeah. Okay. So he's like, I'm going to go up there, and Although, then I'm going to come down, and th- and neither of these two know that I know where they are, or where they're going. Well, they kind of start to, because remember, Lee's got some scouts. He oh, sees yeah, that right. the Union Army is, like, moving faster than it normally would under McClellan. Ah. So he's like, something's thumbs up. up. Yeah, something's happening. Yeah. All right. Which McClellan, also, again, he didn't act on this immediately. He waited, like, a day and a half before he did anything. Okay, fair. He was pondering. No, he was just like, he was worried, like, oh, uh, I have to actually fight. Oh, no. I, I, I have no excuse not to fight now. Uh. You say, but it yeah, seems like he, w- he was uh, he was counting his chickens. Overly cautious. Yeah. Um, so he, uh, Lee, he moved to position himself into an advantageous position in a play for time to allow Jackson to rejoin him. Uh, so he moves... Kind of towards Sharpsburg, Maryland. Uh, and there's a few mountains. There's some mountain, Like the very top of the Blue Ridge Mountains are in this area. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get to Lee is through a few mountain passes. Okay. So he's kind of set himself up defensively to at least buy time for himself. Sure. On September 14th, uh, Lee met McClellan's force at three mountain passes east of Sharpsburg, Maryland in the Battle of South Mountain. That's my birthday. Yes, it is. <laughs> the Union forces were victor. I knew that. <laughs> I've always known that. Okay. <laughs> the Union forces were victorious over the outnumbered Confederates, but McClellan, in his usual fashion, failed to press the advantage, permitting Lee to withdraw closer to Sharpsburg between the town and Antietam Creek. Mm-hmm. Or, as they would probably say in the local area, Antietam Creek. <laughs> wow. That's a good joke. You get one. It's <laughs> more than you get. Um... Lee used the delay to fortify his position and was bolstered by the arrival of Jackson's force. On September 17, 1862, the Battle of Antietam took place between approximately 87,000 on the Union side and approximately 38,000 on the Confederate side. Wow. Okay, so quite a bit more. Yes. Which is what was expected because they're separated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Despite numerous tactical blunders... The Union forces emerge victorious, forcing Lee to retreat back across the Potomac. Now, those tactical blunders, McClellan didn't really coordinate his forces. Uh, so basically, he had three corps, three different corps, and they basically just operated separately. Oh. He didn't give them like any sort of unified strategy or anything. His headquarters was about a mile back from the front line. So he had no idea. He had no idea, so it's like he can't effectively communicate what he wants done. Right. So again... A mile back from the front line. Yeah. He does not want to be there. So he wants were... to be in an armchair at home directing these things. So... He doesn't want to be in the battle. Yeah. So so essentially they were kind of doing their own thing. Yeah. And just doing the best they could. Yeah. Um, as I said, but eventually Union Force is victorious. Between both sides there were over 22,000 casualties. Whew. Including over 2,600 dead in one of the bloodiest days in American history. 
Sheesh. Like okay. more than D-Day, more than uh, like a lot of the trench battles in World War One, wow. more than anything in Vietnam. That's crazy to think because I've I've seen the the Normandy beach uh, part of Saving Private Ryan like three times now. And to think that this was more deadly than that. Well, for the Americans. I mean, maybe not for the English or the Germans. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's still pretty bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's horrible. And and Lee, like, even though he was able to, like, get himself into an advantageous position, it wasn't a battlefield of his choosing. Because right. this was a time, like, yeah, like, like, he was planning on basically, surpri- not surprising, but, like, Choosing, like, where he wanted to be. Like, m- making McClellan come to him. Right, right. Which and, is what you want. Yeah. You, you want to have your... You want to pick the place where the battle happens. Yeah, whereas here, it's like he's kind of on the back foot. And he, you're in the mountains, which is yeah. not a good place in yeah, general. Yeah, it's like he was kind of trying to pick the best of a, war, of a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's kind of the effect these orders have. Okay. Uh, it it kind of shifts what Lee can do. Mm-hmm. Despite having him on the run, McClellan displayed his overcautious nature once again, failing to pursue the retreating Lee, citing his usual excuses of needing reinforcements and supplies. Okay. So... He had a golden opportunity to... Continue to push. Yeah, and possibly capture Lee, and that would have maybe not ended the war, but ended a lot earlier. Right. Um, Again, he just dilly-dallied. On November 5th, so it's a little bit later, uh, the day after the 1862 midterm election, Mm -hmm. and finally fed up with McClellan's hesitance to do battle, Lincoln fired him. Oh, boy. Replacing him with General Ambrose Burnside, the Uh guy whose sideburns are named after. Seriously? Mm Mm-hmm. That's not a joke? No, that's not a joke. Okay. He he had impressive sideburns. I'll I'll take your word for it, because you didn't get a picture of him, did you? No. You're fully capable of looking him up. Fine. I'll wait. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Jeez. Okay, well, the man had a spectacular, nay, magnificent set of sideburns. Yeah, so there you go. That's funny. (laughs) Why didn't they just name him Burnsides then? I don't, I don't know. But I mean, I guess it's funny. That's who they named after. But anyway. Okay. Uh, while the aftermath of the battle itself was uh, largely inconclusive. I mean, yeah, it's a Union victory immediately, but in the overall grand scheme of, like, grand strategy, yeah, it stopped the, U- the Confederate invasion, but didn't really shift much mm-hmm. in terms of the actual warfare. The victory gave Lincoln the clout needed to issue the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation on September 22nd, 1862. Okay. Lincoln had wanted to issue the proclamation sooner, but was advised by his cabinet to wait until after a major victory, as doing so beforehand would have looked like a desperate move from a lo- from the losing side of a war. Okay, sure. Because, like, they hadn't had any major victories at this point. Right. If he issues it now, or if they'd issued it, like, earlier... It would have just seemed, it just of like, we are losing so badly, we need to do whatever we can just to get support. Like a Hail Mary. Yeah. Okay. So, but he issues, he issues it now. It's like, okay, we're in a position of strength now. 
Um, this doesn't look desperate. This, but you know, this is something I we really need to be doing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the proclamation reframed the war. Up to that point, the war had ostensibly been about the maintaining the unity of the states. Mm-hmm. That had been Lincoln's rationale for the war up to this point. I mean, yeah, in the back of his mind, he was probably thinking he'd be great if we ended, we needed slavery. Mm-hmm. But officially, like, they, like it was just we just need to maintain the union. Mm-hmm. Um, the proclamation shifted it to being a war not only to restore the union but to free the slaves. Okay, that we need to not just put things back the way that they were. We need to make them better so this never happens again. Okay, so it's really a pivot point then. Yes. They win this part, and he is like, okay, cool. Yeah. I finally have my feet underneath me. Let's go. Yeah. And, so, and just a side note about the proclamation. I hate it when people say, well, dude, it didn't actually free anybody. Yes, it did. It, it, it freed all of the slaves in Confederate-held territory. Now, were they immediate? Like, basically, it regarded, it regarded them no longer as personal property. It regarded them as people being held against their will. So when, so like, let's say, you know, Georgia, for example. Confederates hold Georgia on January 1st, 1863, which is when it becomes official. Those people are no longer regarded as slaves. Just the Confederates are basically just holding them against their will. Once the Union forces get there, those people are free. Mm -hmm. So it did free people. It was just kind of, like, delayed when they would get their freedom. Right. Because they well, couldn't enforce it. It's similar to any law. Yeah. It's only a law. It's only a piece of paper until you enforce it, you know? Yeah. Um, and, like, the, saying that it freed people, it, it did give them their freedom. Does that mean that they ever had a, you know, a snowball's chance in hell at becoming an equal to any of the white folks in the South? No. Yeah. Um, did that, does that mean that they got their, you know, 40 acres and a mule? No. Does that mean that there weren't people in Texas who were enslaved for several years afterwards? No. But. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, the, and slave and slaves in the union held areas, they're still slaves. Yeah. They're, they're, they're slaves until the 13th amendment. Yeah, there are so, the ins- the there are lots of enslaved people, and so yeah. it's unfortunate that we regard the document with such disdain because I think the well, intent certain people regard it with disdain. I think that the intent of the document was um, it was better than what had come before it, but on the other hand, I can also understand the frustration with. The execution of it and yeah. the later well, implementation of how we actually regarded formerly enslaved people yeah. in the South. It was the most Lincoln could do because it was an executive order. Mm-hmm. It was not a congressionally passed law. It was because because these areas were in rebellion. Right. He had that military authority to do it. Mm-hmm. Like he couldn't do it in areas that the U.S. government held. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, like that wouldn't happen until the Thirteenth Amendment. So he did as much as he could, mm-hmm. and I feel like it's part of the a subset of the whole lost cause BS to minimize it mm-hmm. or treat it with less reverence than it should. So, 
I just, I just had to, you know, go get, get on, on your soapbox. Soap a little bit. So. <laughs> Uh, the victory at Antietam, along with the proclamation, made it much less likely... Uh, take two. The victory at Antietam, along with the proclamation, made it much less likely for European powers to recognize Confederate independence as those countries who had largely outlawed slavery by this point, mm -hmm. at least in their home countries, maybe not in their colonies, but at least in their home countries... They did not want to be seen by the public as openly supporting a rebellion to maintain slavery. Mm -hmm. So it would so it would lose a lot of po uh, popular support or political support at home. Uh, these governments don't want to be seen as propping up a a, a slave a slaveocracy. Even though it was in their own best interest, they were like, mm, "This is going to make us look bad." Yeah, in their own capitalist best interest, that is. Oh, yeah. I mean, they wanted the Southern Cotton, so... Yeah, exactly. Uh, on January 1st, 1863, Lincoln issued the final Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all enslaved persons in rebel-held territory. Uh, George McClellan, remember he got fired, mm -hmm. he would be the Democratic nominee for president in 1864 against Lincoln. Oh, my gosh. Against wow. the guy who fired him. Do you want to guess how badly he lost in the Electoral College? Are we talking percentages or votes? Votes. How many total votes? Uh, at the time, 233. I'm going to say he got 33. He got 21. He lost 212 to 21. Wow. He so got he was, walloped. He, he was slaughtered. Yep. He would later go on to be governor of New Jersey in 1878 to 81 before dying in October 1885. Whew. Yeah. Robert E. Lee... In a sentence that I'm reading now is making me very angry. Robert E. Lee would be fully pardoned in the general amnesty by President Andrew Johnson in 1868. Mm -hmm. Never serving any time in jail or yep. being put on trial for treason as he should have. He died in October 1870 while president of Washington University, which was subsequently renamed Washington and Lee University. Where is that? In Virginia. Oh, okay. It's where he's. It's where is uh, he's buried. Oh, okay. Next to at, his horse at the university. Yes. And he's buried next to his horse. Yes. What about his wife? Yes. I think so. That kind of yeah. sucks. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's, for uh, the you wife. Know what sucks even worse. What? In 2021, the Board of Regents held a vote on whether or not to rename the university, just to take Lee's name off of it. Uh huh. It failed. Oh, that that does suck. Yeah. Although the uh, what was formerly the Lee Chapel. Is now just, I think, like, University Chapel. What about um, statues? Do they have any Lee statues there? Probably. Uh. Like, in, in the chapel where he's buried, there's a pretty fancy sarcophagus, and it's surrounded by Confederate flags. That's unfortunate. Yep. Yep. Actually, his horse might be somewhere else. I don't remember. Anyway... Uh, D.H. Hill would eventually be promoted to lieutenant general and survive the war. He returned to teaching math and died in September 1889. His one true love. Never trust the math teachers. <laughs> Robert Chilton served in various army administrative roles for the remainder of the war and died in February 1879. The soldier who found Special Order 191, Barton Mitchell, was wounded at Antietam, and he never really recovered, dying in 1868. Uh. Yeah. So, normally this is where the part of the show where we'd go over our sources. Uh-huh. But 
as I mentioned today, we have a little mystery to, to, to unpack here. Okay. Who lost Order 191? Or whose fault is it that it got lost? Okay. So, I present to you three suspects. Okay. Colonel Robert Chilton, General D.H. Hill, and General Robert E. Lee. Which one, you're, you're saying which one uh, lost them? Well, I'm going I'm to elaborate a little bit on each one here. Okay, all right. So Chilton, he wrote the orders. He failed to confirm receipt of his message to Hill. Mm-hmm. And he failed to confirm with Lee that he needed to message Hill directly or if Jackson will do it. Okay. Because remember, he kind of took it upon himself to give Hill those orders, which... Jackson did. Yeah, which yep. you could make the argument that he was acting out of an abundance of caution. Because mm-hmm. it like, well, this is this is separating him from Jackson. So do I need him? Is Jackson going to write? I'll, I'll just write him just, just to make sure. Yeah. He, he could have checked with Lee. Yeah. But maybe Lee was unavailable or busy or something like that. He couldn't get to him. Or Lee was in a really bad mood and was like, don't bother me unless yeah. it's necessary. And Shelton was like, Ugh. So, you know, so, okay. so there's, there's the arguments for him. Hill, he confirmed that he received his orders from Jackson, but claimed he never received or saw Chilton's message. The special order was found in a location speculated to be Hill's camp. We don't know where exactly he camped relative to Lee. But remember that picture I showed you? Yeah. The orders were not at Lee's camp. Right. But he's he's a general, so presumably he's going to be at least nearby. Yeah. Close-ish. And he had previously misplaced an order from Jackson during the Seven Days Battles earlier in 1862. So he's a history of this. Okay. It didn't really affect it. And then that time Mm -hmm. it was fixed. Like, it didn't really affect anything. But... He has a history of this. Okay. And he is the person that, uh, like, Southern historiography, he's the one who usually gets the blame for it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, uh, I don't, I wouldn't put too much reliance on that. Just, just, yeah. Okay. I'll try that, and keep an open mind. That's who is typically, he's typically blamed for it. Oh, he vehemently, vehemently denied it until the day he died. Okay. Lee, the ambitious and complex orders were the root cause of needing so many copies. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he could have just said, okay, I'm going to take this half, Jackson's going to take this half. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple orders. Yeah. Or he could have broken them down into separate orders yeah, that and like, were it, specific to yeah. the person. Like, long, like, okay, I have these orders of Jackson, orders of Longstreet. Longstreet, tell this guy to do this, this, or this. Mm-hmm. Jackson, this, this, or this. Yeah. Or or assign your commander out as you see fit. Right. Because Lee, you know, he, he generally trusted his subordinates. Mm-hmm. And in Civil War historiography, this is kind of like the, 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 the starting lineup of yeah. the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee... And under him, Jeb Stewart, James Longstreet, and Stonewall Jackson. That's kind of like the A team uh-huh. of Civil War Confederate stuff. Okay. Um, so they're at the height of their powers. Um, so did he really need to essentially micromanage? Sorry. You're fine. My eye is itching. You're fine. So essentially, like, did he need to micromanage to this extent? 
Okay. Because there's a there is something to be said like you can overplan something. You can overplan oh, sure. yourself into defeat. Oh yeah. So, uh, and the desire for from him to move out quickly would put pressure on his staff to get their jobs done fast, leading to errors. Right. Obviously, you want to get the job done as quickly as possible, but also you got to write out these orders eight times. Mm-hmm. You know. And your your boss is rushing you to get it done. And it's two pages, which takes a long time. Yeah, especially back then. Yeah. Like, it, it's... So... He should have written, drawn, like, a, a football diagram. <laughs> what is that what it's called? Play? Like, a play diagram? Yeah, yeah, yeah diagram it out. Yeah. He should have drawn, like, a play diagram. Like that's like, <laughs> Robert E. Lee's the Vince Lombardi of this. Yeah. Like, you got a seal here and a seal there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. I don't know what that means, but that's... okay. Old NFL film stuff. Okay. But, like with every mystery, there's a twist. I introduce to you the mystery suspect. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. A fourth mystery suspect. This is a plot. This is, this is like an M. Night Shyamalan twist. Okay. Except this is good. Um, he doesn't speak for both of us. I like M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, he's hit or miss. Just keep going. I like signs. Um, the unknown courier that Chilton used. Mm-hmm. Did he just drop it? Did he even ever get it to Hill? Okay. Because, like, it, it, because like, but something against that, though, why would he wrap it in cigars? Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Doesn't make any sense because to... essentially he's on the clock. Right, he's got to get this done quickly. Yeah, and like the cigars are yeah. a strange entry into that. Yeah, and it's like I couldn't find anything on anybody's smoking habits. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> so, because that could kind of indicate. Yeah, that was the other thing. Like, so to me, what it sounded like, and this isn't saying one way or the other who I think it is yet, but if you're gonna wrap cigars in something. It almost seems like you're going to be gifting the cigars to somebody. Like, you want to take the orders mm. and you wrap them in the cigars. And then you're like, okay. I never thought about that. I'm going to pass this off to somebody. But the cigars are like a little treat. Like, here here you go. Mm. I know you smoke these bad boys. Here's the orders and also a gift with them. That's what I'm thinking. It'd be like if there was food with them or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, as a gift. Because what other use would you have for wrapping cigars in paper like that? You know? Yeah. But also, like, are you saying, like, Chilton may have sent those along the hill? That's what I'm thinking, Mm. is, like, Chilton would say, okay, got this. I'm sending these along. I want, because I want you to know, I need you to know about Mm. this. But I'm going to send in a little treat with it, because I know you like these, and I'm your dude, so... These are also, like, official orders. I don't know if they'd be, like, you know, if these are, like, because they could be, cigars might smudge them. I mean. (laughs) You know, and the orders are not something you want to be smudged. Well, probably not. Cigars are typically pretty dry by the time that they get to the end user. But, but like, knowing that they were in an envelope as well and they were wrapped around those cigars, that is what indicates to me, like, I know you're going to see this, and I know that you're going to look at it, because you're going to open. If you see that there's cigars in there, you're going to open it, and then, presumably, you would take the cigars out. And that's the other thing, is, like, the cigars were still there. 
So what that says to me is this was a gift that he was passing along. Somebody was passing from one person to the other, and it got lost. There's a, Well, we could also make the argument that, like, you know, Hill saw the orders, and he had some cigars. Like, he's like they're getting ready to move out. Mm-hmm. He's got his cigars there. It's like, oh, I need to get these packed up because I need to move now. Mm-hmm. I need to get preparations to get everything moving. And he just kind of wraps them up in this, stuffs them in the thing, like the first thing he sees, just mm-hmm. to, you know, pack them up. And then they just get misplaced. Right. So it could be that as well. Um, so. Such a weird but place to just randomly offhand put yeah. something. That's not to say, though, that I haven't put the phone in the fridge or something. I like. also couldn't find what happened to the actual cigars. I don't know if they got, I assume they got smoked. But, uh. Yeah, so, okay, so, do, so it's my, like, do you blame them, or do you blame, like, the boss? Yeah, so. so do you lay the blame on Lee for making these needlessly complicated orders mm-hmm. and putting so much pressure on Chilton to write them? Do you blame Chilton for not requesting receipt? Do you blame the courier for potentially not doing his job? I was going to, like, initially... Or yeah, or hell. Initially, I was going to say the courier, because I'm like, this is what you're supposed to do all day, every day. But the altered um, state of those orders knocks out the courier. Yeah, because the, the orders are typically not sent with a package of cigars. Yeah. <laughs> it, it provided, I mean... If they are, no wonder the South lost, because that's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, we can't say for sure that they didn't leave Chilton with cigars in them. Hmm. We couldn't say that, but we're, I'm going to make the assumption when they left Chilton, they did not have cigars inside the envelope. So I'm going to say not the courier. I'm going to knock the, the courier out. I will say that also it's not Chilton because I would say that regardless of orders, you are going to make the assumption of receipt, even if you don't ask for it specifically. Mm-hmm. Because that, that had been procedure before like up to this point like right. like uh like captain mitchell said like it was typical of the staff to request receipt right so i would say that it's not shelton's fault because that was standard protocol and you probably shouldn't have to ask you've been at war for a while now hmm. like so far it should be things... a well-oiled machine by this right. point so that knocks me down to hill or lee And I say I'm keeping Lee in the running because although not directly his fault, I have been managed by an Mm over-planner, and I understand how devastating that can be. A better tactician would have delegated separately tasks only that needed Mm -hmm. to be divided between the the, the characters that were at play. Hill, Longstreet, all that. And also something to keep in mind... Lee, even though he gave these orders separating Hill from Jackson, probably would have known that Hill would have gotten his orders from, from Jackson. Jackson. Right. Like, he could have spe- he could have specifically told Chilton, hey, give this guy orders yeah. from me. Mm-hmm. He could have specifically gave him, like, all right, you know, this might cause some confusion. I'm just going to clear it up. And Hill did say that he did get these orders from Jackson, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, otherwise he wouldn't have known what to do. Right. So I am going to knock out Hill then because I don't think it was Hill's fault and I'm going to say it's Lee's fault. 
A better tactician would have separated the orders into a more orderly manner and only given the necessary orders to those people who needed them, mm-hmm. i.e., Jackson, make sure that you separate, you you make Hill separate from you, ensure that that happens. Because, presumably, Jackson and Hill are close. So, I, I'm going to say, based off the fact that we don't know, we know that Hill got his orders from Jackson, and we don't know what happened to that, the mystery orders that were wrapped in the cigar, I'm going to say it's Lee's fault. Because I think he could have done a better job of delegating. And also, he's the one in charge. He's the Grand Poobah. So, <laughs> it's him. It's it's Lee's fault. But I know that Hill is getting the blame. And I know that he swears up and down. So, I'm going to say it's Lee. Okay. That's my final answer. Listeners, you heard it here. Teresa Holmes. <laughs> with her mighty and indomitable powers of deductive reasoning. <laughs> And my very keen ability to judge. <laughs> a very well, well-practiced well talent to judge. Has officially determined, for all time, that Robert E. Lee is to blame for losing Special Order 191 and his own defeat at the Battle of Antietam. I mean, honestly, it, even if you if you kind of reduce this uh, this problem, if if you were to make this like less, the stakes not as high, I think that you would still probably boil yeah. it down to you're supposed to be the person in charge. You are the one that needs to be running the mm-hmm. machine. You need to be in all levels of audit. So the buck stops here. Yep, the buck so. stops at Robert E. Lee. Yep. And I'm glad to say it is a very fulfilling statement to say, Robert E. Lee, you effed up. (laughs) You horrible, horrible POS who is likely just roasting alive. Well, not alive, but roasting somewhere right now. Oh, my gosh. Robert E. Lee, you effed up. And that's, I, I believe, our second Confederate general <laughs> to F up. Oh, yes. Oh, and trust me, he won't be the last. There's more F rappers ahead. I mean, the last Confederate general. There's more F rapper Confederate generals ahead. The the Confederate officer corps was rife <laughs> with F rappers. Yeah, you said earlier <laughs> that all of the Confederates were traitors, and I just wanted to clarify that. I think I agree with you that all of the um, Confederate officers were traitors. Yeah. But I yeah, maybe think, not the whole army. Yeah, I was going to say. But, like, really, after the war, it's like, the officer corps, the Confederate Congress, Confederate Cabinet, and the governors all should have been tried for treason. Yeah. Like, the rank and file, a lot of them were conscripted. Yeah. Them, I would have, or, like, your basic civil servants. Yeah. They would have gotten pardoned. That would have been fine. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that um, a lot of soldiers were yeah. coerced or commanded to mm-hmm. to be a part of the army, and I, I I honestly think that they were part of they were just a cog in the capitalist machine, and that the officers and the rich gentry in the South didn't regard them as people they either. Were, oh yeah, because like uh, they were the people who owned the slaves. It wasn't like your Joe Schmo dirt farmer who had slaves. Right. Exactly. So, so I just wanted to clarify, like, yeah, I, I do think that um, the Confederate officer should have been tried, but I think that your your lowly Confederate soldier 
um, while nothing to be proud of hmm. to you know have participated in this, I think a lot of them didn't have many other options. So, right. so like like many many a time and many an empire, namely you know Roman Empire, Roman Republic, needed some good old fashioned treason trials. <laughs> Put on a show for the crowd. <laughs> okay, sources. Um, an article on the National Park Service website called An Invitation to Battle, Special Order 191. From support, their page. Support your local national park. Yes. Uh, from the page in the Battle of um, Monocacy, which was actually took place around the same area, mm-hmm. like where the, they were camped. Like two years later, randomly, another battle took place there. So. Oh, interesting. Um John Cannon's The Antietam Campaign from 1994, Joseph Harsh, Taken at the Flood from 2012, Perry Jameson, Death in September from 1999, Stephen Sears, George B. McClellan from 1988, Ezra Warner, Generals in Gray from 1959, and Wilbur Jones Jr.'s article from the Civil War Regiments, Volume 5 from 1997, called Who Lost the Lost Orders, Stonewall Jackson, His Courier, and Special Order 191. All right, so Robert E. Lee is our major ever-upper tonight, but who are we talking about next time? A little bit of a palate cleanse. Uh, the last few, you know, potato famine, Red Scare, Civil War. Lots of death. Lots of horrible things happening. A little bit of a palate cleanse. Okay. We're talking about, uh, and it's our first foray into video game history. Okay. One of the most legendarily bad games ever to the point where it almost destroyed the home video game market a lot of them buried out in the desert et the video game oh man okay this is very exciting Mm -hmm. i i've heard legends and and i know about it uh just of it you know the topic of the et video game but uh don't know anything else so i'm very interested to hear more have you ever played it oh god no no. My grandmother, because never got rid of anything, had an old Atari was it 2600, I think it was, from, you know, way back in the day uh, at her house when I was a kid. And I, I'd kind of heard about this. Like, this was, yeah, I've been playing video games for years, and you kind of hear, hear rumors of things like this. And she had a copy of E.T. the video game. She had all, still had all the old Atari games that you know, she bought for you know, my mom back in the day. She was a kid. Or a teenager, I guess. I don't know. Or her grandkids. I don't know. Um, and I played it. Oh, yeah? I played a level of it. It is just as bad as the legends say. I'll take your it, word it for it. It was... Like, I was like, what am I even supposed to... What, what am I doing here? What are you supposed to do? What is this? I remember this in the movie. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so th- that'll be a fun little, fun little thing. And the next couple are probably going to be a little more lighthearted. So okay, that's fair. All Before right. we get back into some horribleness, please be sure to check out our other projects: the Drunken Pawn, where we play board games and drink on YouTube. Uh, Attack of the Final Girls, my sister podcast project with my lovely pod wife Juliet, where we talk about horror movies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WeEftUp, no spaces. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And this is We, we Effed Up. Up.